Um, we continue on in our summer sermon series, so that's titled uh, Jesus I Am. Uh, so we're looking together at the eight I Am statements of Jesus as we find them in the Gospel of John. Um, so last Sunday, uh, we spent time digging into John 14 and verses 1 to 6. Uh, and Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, this afternoon, uh, we're looking together at Jesus' statement, uh, I am the bread of life. And we find this in John chapter 6. So let's have a look at John 6. So we're going to be reading verses 22 to 51. The words are going to be up on the screen. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. So John says this, starting in verse 22. Um, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had, only been, there had been only one boat. Uh, they also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Uh, some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Amen. Let's just pray again. Father, we, we just want to, to take a deep breath and, and receive all that you would, you would want to give to us in this time. Holy Spirit, come and meet with us and speak to us by your word. We ask that, that you would be made much of. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase and that you would speak into our hearts and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, uh, this afternoon, as we uh, look at this particular I am statement, um, I'm going to share what I share, unsure uh, about uh, what your opinion is on the subject of bread. Uh, I don't even know if you have an opinion on bread. But I think most of you would agree that bread is important to us. Amen. Um, <laughs> I say that because it's something the overwhelming majority of us uh, eat uh, every single day. Uh, when you look at the figures for bread in the UK, which is what I found myself doing this past week, you'll discover that 99% of all households in our nation buy bread of some kind. 76% of the bread we eat is white. 11 million loaves of bread are sold every single day. 11 million. And I share all of that with the caveat, this isn't a sermon about bread. Um, but when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, our context means that it's not difficult for us, or it ought not to be difficult for us to understand what it is he means by that, because we eat bread all the time. I love bread. I've always loved bread. Uh, this is how much I love bread. In the past, I've had family members buy me bread for my Christmas or my birthday. Um, and I know that sounds like we're really poor or we live in some kind of Charles Dickens novel. Uh, but it just underlines how much I love bread. Now, there was no more a difficult day for me than the day uh, that Morton's Rules went into administration this year. And I was genuinely... Like, honestly, genuinely gutted about it. I still remember where I was. Uh, it was a crisp Saturday morning. I just attempted the park run in Toll Cross. Uh, Ramsey and I were in the butchers in quarantine. And I kid you not, everyone, and I mean everyone, was talking about it. Uh, people were in, in shock. Uh, if Glaswegians were the possessors of sackcloth, they would have put it on. Uh, and it wasn't good enough that we have uh, McGee's rules as a backup. McGee's uh, are okay, but, but Morton's is, is the bee's knees. So all that to say, you may or may not have the same passion that I have when it comes to bread. But I think we can all agree that, that bread plays an important part of our everyday lives. And for every expert who says that bread is bad for you, there's other experts that say that bread is good for you. So let those experts cancel each other out and eat some bread. That's my recommendation. Uh, historically, having some bread has been an important part uh, of, of generations, civilizations, for thousands of years. Uh, bread has been at the heart of a wide variety of different societies around our world. And you can trace bread all the way back to 8000 BC with the Egyptians. Bread was at the heart of their civilization. And by the time of the Roman Empire, in the days of Jesus, it was decreed by Rome that bread should be given out to every single person. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he did so in a context where bread and access to bread was regarded even in Roman times as a basic human right. And that's an incredible thought for us when we think about how barbaric and authoritarian the Roman Empire was. 
We read of John describing Jesus saying, I am the bread of life on four occasions within this passage. In verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Verse 41, therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. And verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of his bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the context for Jesus speaking about himself being the bread of life is found in the fact that this crowd pursued Jesus across the sea to Capernaum. So why did they pursue Jesus? What was their motive? They were physically hungry. Jesus had performed a miracle. He had blessed them with lunch, the provision of bread, and they were hungry again. They wanted more. So when they eventually find Jesus, he sees through all of us. He sees what's going on in their heart. And he says to them in verse 26, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. They basically thought Jesus was a delicatessen. And just as a side note for us this afternoon, how easy it is for you and I to use Jesus as a means to what we perceive as a much greater end. So the crowd are materialists. Their only regard is for the physical. They have little or no concept of the spiritual. And Jesus tells them as much in verse 27. He says this, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. <clears throat> and again, what a challenge for each one of us this afternoon that our hearts would not be focused on the here and now, the day-to-day -day busyness and activity of life, but our hearts would be eternally minded. We would be focused on eternity. The crowd still don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying here. And we know this because our comeback to these words is found in verse 28. What can we do to perform the works of God? In other words, Jesus, what do we need to carry out in order to get this eternal life? And Jesus tells them very plainly, your only necessary response is belief. Belief. Jesus says this because with belief comes repentance. With belief comes dependence. With belief comes assurance that you have this right relationship with God. He tells the crowd in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe. You believe in the one that he has sent. And incredibly, the crowd respond, not with belief, but with confirmation again that he is from God. They want more evidence. So in verse 30, this is what they say to him. What sign are you going to do, Jesus? And incredibly, immediately after that, what are you going to perform, Jesus? Jesus performed. This is what they said. It's almost like we see Jesus as some kind of performance art, ready to respond at their every demand. Now, the crowd had previously seen and heard of what Jesus had miraculously done. So Jesus, before this, before John 6, Jesus had turned water into wine. He had healed the official son. He spent time healing more sick people. <clears throat> he had already fed the 5,000. He had walked on water. And they knew this. They knew all of this. They heard about this. Some of them were direct witnesses to these moments, to these events. And yet here we have the same group of people demanding just one more piece of evidence. One more piece of evidence, Jesus, to confirm that you are God. But effectively saying to him, yes, you've done all of that, Jesus, but we want something else. And then when you do that one more thing, forget about all that. When you do that one more thing, then we'll believe. You know, how strong 
that unbelieving wall can be in the heart. And that heart can so often forget the mighty works that God has previously done in our lives. The Christian capacity to forget, to forget God, to forget all that he has personally helped, blessed and provided us with is breathtaking at times. The ways in which we can forget. And you and I can find ourselves being like that crowd. We can explain what God has done away. I don't know if you ever experience this. I do this all the time. God steps in. So I'm in the midst of a problem. I cry out to God and ask for help. God steps in. God answers my prayer. <clears throat> and in my head I say this. That was going to happen anyway. It was going to happen anyway. And we have a natural explanation for the supernatural work of God in the ordinary circumstances of life. And we have no right to give a natural explanation. We have to give glory to God. Or we can be like the crowd by simply forgetting the signs of God in our lives. We just simply lose track of how gracious God has been. And that's maybe something that we ought to do. We, we journal answers to prayer so that we can then look back and it can increase our faith as we think about how faithful God has been to us. The reality is the more and more time we spend focusing on the here and now, the present day circumstances of our lives, <clears throat> the less and less time we have to think about the ways in which God is working, past, present and future. The crowd continue in their argument for one more sign and in verse 31 they say to Jesus, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And here the crowd are speaking of Moses and the relationship that he had as God's chosen instrument towards God's people. God used Moses to then bless the people. And they recognized that as God used Moses to give the people bread, they wanted God to use Jesus in much the same way. Essentially saying, Jesus, if you produce bread for us right now, then at the very least, we will put you on a par with Moses. And again, they're not really concerned about who Jesus really is. They're concerned about him being the provider of more bread so that their physical bellies can be full. Jesus responds and he wants them to take their eyes off their empty stomachs and see it's not about Moses, it's not about bread, it's about true bread. Verses 32 to 33, he says this, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And as Jesus says this, quite interesting, as Jesus says this, something clicks for the crowd they don't fully get it, but they're getting something. Their hearts and minds are moving in the right direction. And they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread. To which Jesus then replies, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Verse 35. So when Jesus says that he is the bread of God, come down from heaven to give life to the world. This is Jesus openly declaring that he is not and he will never be a means to an end. He is only ever the ultimate end. Jesus is saying here, you want to have God, you want to have the life that God has for you, then, then have me, have me. In a similar vein to what we looked at last week, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this, this afternoon, as you take stock of your own life, I wonder how much you mentally affirm to this idea of Jesus being your ultimate end, the bread of life. I think we can all do that. We can all say in our heads, Jesus is my bread of life. 
And then how does that mental affirmation result in practical living day to day? <clears throat> does the fruit of your life point towards a similar reality or another completely different reality or maybe even a partial reality as you connect the practical ways you live your life and the mental affirmation that you have. Because we can all say in our heads, Jesus is my bread of life. But then we can live our lives in a completely different way or a partially different way. We can say this other thing is my bread of life and not Jesus. So the question that I pose to each one of us this afternoon is this, how is it that you and I can truly know that Jesus is our bread of life? How can we know that Jesus is our bread of life? And to answer that, let me ask three questions of your life. Three questions. Um, and as you answer these questions, hopefully you'll have a greater understanding as to what your relationship with Jesus is like. So how can we know that Jesus is our bread of life? Well, the first question I want to ask is this, are you fully satisfied in Christ? Are you satisfied in Christ? Are you fully satisfied in Christ? Because if Jesus is your bread of life, then without question, you will be fully satisfied in him. And as you think about this notion of being fully satisfied in Christ, we have to understand this as Jesus, Jesus bringing his joy, Jesus bringing his pleasure, Jesus bringing his fulfillment as we draw nearer and nearer to him. I'm immediately struck by the words of King David. Uh, the psalmist, Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is a person who takes refuge in him? Now deep down, is this not the life that you want to live? Do we all not want to get to the end of our lives? On the day of your funeral, that's going to be a day, by the way. People will meet together and they can say with confidence something to the effect of this. This person tasted, they saw that the Lord was good. They were a happy person. They were a blessed person because they found God as their refuge. This was the God of their salvation. Is that not what you would like people to say of you? Not so that people can look at you and think you're good and godly and great, but so that people can look at you and see God at work in you. Uh, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So I wonder this afternoon, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And are you trying to fill that hunger and thirst with something other than Christ? You know, there's an undeniable connection between the words of Jesus in John 6 and what Jesus tells the woman at a well in John 4. John 4 verse 14, he says this, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So Jesus wants us to understand that when our satisfaction in him is a living reality, we will no longer need to strive for satisfaction in other pursuits and in other places. And that's because none of these other things in this world satisfy the way that Jesus satisfies. He satisfies our soul, our heart, our mind, our will, our desires. And I wonder if that's true of you today. Can you say that you're fully satisfied in Christ? I was chatting to someone in this church this past week and they were telling me something which brought great encouragement uh, to my heart. Um, and it wanted me to pursue more of God in my life. It wanted me to find 
my greatest satisfaction in him and in him alone more and more. And they essentially said this to me, my times with God are so precious right now. I find myself in the Psalms. And as I'm in the Psalms, God by his spirit is meeting me in a way that I've never experienced before. And I was so encouraged by that, so challenged. And to some extent, I found that to be true both last week with Missions Week, the outreach we had and how crazy that was. And the previous week with our 48 hour prayer. And I've seen just over the last few weeks this undeniable connection between a genuine hunger for God, a desire to be in his presence and in a, an experience of satisfaction in him. So it turns out that John Piper was right. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So how is it that we get to that place of satisfaction and fulfillment in him? How do we do that? Well, I've told you this afternoon that I love bread. Uh, and of all the bread that I love, my favourite is a French baguette. Uh, and a good day in my eyes is when I walk into my kitchen uh, I sit down at a table and I, I chop off a bit of baguette, a French baguette, and this is one I prepared earlier. Uh, and then I'll just slice that bad boy in half. And I've got two slices of baguette and then I just take a, a big bite out of it. And as I'm doing that, that tastes so good. That's really good. And that's that's an enjoyable experience. Now, I need to be careful that doesn't turn into an idol because I love bread so much. But the more and more we experience God uh, in our lives, the more and more we pursue him, my hope and prayer is that what I've just done there uh, is a picture of our relationship with God. Because as I finish this bit of bread, is this... Does this look like your prayer life? Uh, do you make your time, do you make time in your day to be with him? So just like I planned, or I do plan every day to have some bread and butter, do you plan when it is you're going to come to God's table? As I prepared what was on that table, do you prepare in your heart to be with God? Do you come with repentance? Do you come with faith that God's going to speak to you and work in your life? And as I tasted that bread, do you taste and see that the Lord is good? Do you, do you spend time, precious time in prayer, amazing time in God's word, really expecting God to speak to you and work in you? It's something that really helps me and it might be different for you. I used to, used to have a, a mission praise book as part of my devotional time and I would just, as part of my time with God, I would open up that book and pick out a classic hymn and just start singing it. I've, I've changed it now to Apple Music, which is probably less sanctifying, but just singing of who God is, rejoicing in who he is. I mean, it's incredible. The joy of the Lord really is our strength. And that, for me, that's preparation for my heart that then leads to me experiencing the reality that, that God is good. Taste and see that he is good. And I think that's the essence of our times with God. It's planning, it's preparing, and it's tasting planning, preparing, and tasting. But so often a more accurate picture of our times with God would be if I was to run by that table and just grab a bit of bread on the way out of the door, often that's what our times with God look like. 
our times of God, with God can so often be in the midst of us going to do something else or actually doing something else. We just kind of do it at the side. And I share that as someone who struggles with that on a regular basis. You know, it's in the midst of things that I'm doing. In between those, those two things that I see as important, I can fit God in. But are we planning, are we preparing, and are we actually tasting? That's my challenge. Have a look at what Bruce Millen says on this passage and his commentary in John's Gospel. He says, Jesus once tasted, obviates, removes the need for further satisfaction. Jesus alone can satisfy the heart. In a society that has experimented to the point of satiation, with every form of material, physical, and palliative to fill the inner emptiness of its heart, Jesus' invitation comes with wonderful relevance. He who comes to me will never go hungry, will never be thirsty. So let that be your reality, that you find your satisfaction in him, so that you can say, I have tasted, I have seen that the Lord is good. This brings us on to our second question, as we understand, if Jesus is our bread of life, are you unreservedly thankful in Christ? Are you unreservedly thankful in Christ? You know, being thankful reorients our perspective onto a correct lens. When we're thankful, suddenly we have a more accurate perspective on life. And I was reflecting on this during the week where world-class experts are downplaying the blessings when life is going well. And we overstate the challenges when life is difficult. So we're kind of pessimists when it comes to the good times and optimists in a negative sense when it comes to the bad times, if that makes sense. The only way out and the only way through either of those errors is a life that is marked by thanksgiving. So we need to be a people who are thankful. And this is connected to satisfaction because the more and more you gaze at the cross, the more and more you're thankful for what he has done for you. The more and more you see how much he, he rescued you and how much you have been you have been rescued and saved from your sin, then more and more, as you are thankful, you will find yourself being supremely satisfied in him. And this idea of Jesus as our bread of life and us being unreservedly thankful in him as a response has a particular reason. And the reasons found in verses 37 to 39, Jesus says this, and let's just take a moment to focus on these words. Verse 37 to 39 Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up in the last day. And in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And what we see from these verses is an incredible truth. The Father will decide who it is that comes to him. It's the Father who decides who's going to come to Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, the reason for that, it's not because you thought it was a good idea. No, Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, verse 37. And again, he says, this is the will of him who sent me, but I should lose none of those he has given me. One of the most important passages that points to this idea of God choosing us is Ephesians 1 and verses 4 to 6. The Apostle Paul says this, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
to be holy and blameless and loved before him, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that he lavished on us and the beloved one. So if there's anything that should ever cause you to give unreserved thanksgiving, it's the fact that God has chosen you before the foundations of the earth. Because the essence of giving thanks is that you receive something that you did not earn. And if you've been chosen before the foundations of the world to be in relationship with God, then you can be absolutely certain that it had nothing to do with you. God chose you, God saved you, God transformed you, God sanctifies you, and God will one day glorify you in spite of who you were, not because of who you were. There's a song by Steph McLeod. Um, I would recommend, I might even put it on DBC Life, titled, When I Found Jesus. And it sounds initially like he's singing the opposite of what I've just said, that it was him who found Christ. But as you listen to the song, you realise that his testimony is one where, yes, he found Jesus, but before that, God found him. Uh, let me just read these lyrics to you, and you've maybe heard this song before. Hopefully it will give us more and more of the right perspective as to what God has done for us and why we should all be truly thankful. When I found Jesus, he was holding on to me. I was broken. I couldn't stand on my own two feet. He said the word and broke my chains and I was free to breathe again. My life was saved by the love and blood of Jesus. When I found Jesus, he was standing over me. I was down and out and I'd been living in the street. There were times that I could have died, but the Lord was by my side and I didn't know it then, but I'd been saved by the blood of Jesus. He took the weight of my shoulders. <clears throat> he came and gave me rest. He gave me peace from my troubles. Oh Lord, I have been blessed. When I found Jesus, he was walking next to me on the lonely path of my man-made destiny. He must have looked into my eyes and saw my tears and heard my cries. For where I stood, I was saved by the blood of Jesus. And the empty promises of the world had forsaken me. They, were left, they left me in the wilderness and it was Jesus who rescued me. He called my name. He called my name. Yes, he called my name. And I will never be the same. Just one touch from the King of Kings. He changes everything. When I found Jesus, he was heavy on my heart. And I was lost for words and I didn't know where to start. All I know is I believe, but more than that, I have received. My sins were paid by the loving blood of Jesus. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. And then he sings, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now, Lord, I see. So, have you found Jesus? And as you think about the answer to that question, do you recognise that it was Christ who first found you? All of which leads us on to our final question as we come to identify whether or not he is our bread of life. Um, are you undoubtedly secure in Christ? Are you undoubtedly secure in Christ? And I ask that question of each one of us today because something that Jesus says again and again and again within this passage is that our eternal security is absolutely certain. It's guaranteed. You, you cannot read this passage and come to any other conclusion. 
Those who are gods in Christ will always be gods in Christ. So let's have a look at verses 35 to 40 again. Jesus speaks these words. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, so important. This is the will of him who sent me. For I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, I will raise him up on the last day. So I don't think you can read this passage and come, come up with any other conclusion apart from the one that says that Jesus has got you and he has got you forever. When we read these words in John 6, I would encourage you to, to jump over to Romans 8 and verses 31 to 39 and particularly verse 37 onwards. The Apostle Paul says, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing will be able to separate us. Nothing. So when we ask that question this afternoon, are you undoubtedly secure in Christ? With absolute certainty, if you believe in him today, you can say, yes, I'm secure. And you can say that because you can also say, he is my bread of life. A number of years back in my Christian walk, I was utterly convinced that I'd lost my salvation. Um, and it was God who took my hand and led me to John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up in the last day. And he also took me to Romans 8, 38 to 39. Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it was these, these passages that became rocks on which my feet could stand. And I was suddenly able to understand the love of me and mercy of God in such, a, in such a great way, in a much deeper way. I was suddenly able to understand how consistent that love and mercy was for me. So as a church, let's be a people who are undoubtedly secure in Christ. If God chose you, then he is going to see you through, through this life and into eternity. I mean, it would make no sense if he chose you before the foundations of the earth to then change his mind halfway through. Amen. That just, that is unbiblical. So let's hold fast to the fact he has chosen us and he will see us through to the end, into eternity. Jesus closes with these words in verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As Jesus says that, uh, this is why we come to the table. Uh, the bread that he gives, the bread of life, was his life for your life and for my life, for our lives. So if we love Jesus today, we can take this bread, we can drink this cup, and we can recognize and give thanks for all that Christ has done for us on the cross. 
It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. For as we take this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. <clears throat> so for those of us who love Jesus today, we come to the table and we remember and rejoice in all that he is to us. And as we sing, as we always do, whether it be 11 a.m. or 4 p.m., um, there is space for us after our time of worship, as we have tea and coffee, uh, to receive prayer, to receive prayer for uh, something that we, we might find ourselves in the middle of. Uh, maybe we need prayer for healing. Um, if you're watching online and you have questions about Christian faith, then do speak with us. But in the midst of all that, if you would like prayer, then do speak to us. Uh, and we would count it a privilege to do that. So these are the ways in which we can respond uh, as we think about how good and faithful God has been to us. He is our bread of life. Uh, let's respond and sung worship. Let's come to the table. Let's have fellowship. Let's pray for one another. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for your word. And we, we recognize that this is a, an amazing gift for us. And, and we don't want to take for granted the fact that we live in a country where we can come and we can worship in a public setting, uh, and we can pray, uh, and we can encourage, and, and we pray, Lord, for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ right now. Mm -hmm. Lord, we pray for them as, as they perhaps are facing difficult and trial moments of danger, and we ask that you would increase their faith and protect them. But Lord, as we look at their lives, we pray that, that we would be inspired, both by your word and their example, to be all that you call us to be. As we respond and worship now, as we take this bread and drink this cup, would you work in us and use us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.